This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, Jeremy here with Simple Little Life. Welcome to episode five of the Simple Little Life podcast. Today, I've got a special guest. I'd like to welcome Mr. Todd Fuss. Welcome, Todd. Oh, thank you very much, Jeremy. I'm really happy to be here. You and I have been uh, connected on Instagram for quite a few years, and th- there's a lot of really fascinating things that I'd like to, to know about you. And then also for the listeners, too, I think you have bought more of my knives than any single person out there. Um, definitely a big knife collector. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, briefly, could you just give us some of your, your background story? I know it's really fascinating with your time in the Air Force, and I'd, I personally would like to learn more about that oh sure um i there wasn't much going on uh back where i grew up as far as job wise in the 80s and so in 1987 i joined the air force okay and where did you grow Uh, up hope mills north carolina it's right next to federal which is where fort bragg is okay Uh, so, so i grew up around uh the Army Special Forces, so I naturally joined the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, joined the Air Force, 87, uh, went to basic training, <clears throat> went to some intermediate training, and then RAF Mildenhall in the United Kingdom was my first assignment. Uh, I was an aircraft mechanic on KC-135 aircraft, uh, four different models of the same airplane. Uh, and from England, I went to Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, right outside of Great Falls. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was uh, there from 1992 to 96. Okay, I actually sold a knife to another gentleman that had been there. And then I've actually been to the Air Force Base. We used to go to Great Falls to go shopping all the time, just right across the border there. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say I used to, you know, run up and down that highway to go to Canada to drink. not going to, you know, <laughs> never did that. No, <laughs> it's funny. Okay, and so from Montana, where did you go? We went to from Montana to Florida, and as soon as we got to Florida, I found out I had uh, lost about half of my hearing. You're working around the airplanes, and then uh, the Air Force gave me a choice. I could get out, uh, or I could retrain to do something else, and they only gave me four choices, and all of them were not very, um, not very good choices for a mechanic, you know, so I took paralegal. And I dealt with the law uh, professionally up until recently. Uh, but I've always worked with my hands. Um, you know, I'd go to work in the Air Force and work, you know, 8, 10, or 12 hours and then come home and work, you know, 6 or 8 out in the shop or the garage building. And what kind of stuff were you building then? Was it mostly like, you know, projects for the house, mostly wood stuff, or was it other different? I have things? done uh, wood Woodworking, fine furniture making, wood turning, uh, used to turn bowls and platters. And then when the Harry Potter craze kicked off, I was uh, making magic wands. Oh, no kidding. And since I worked with lawyers and judges for so long, I made uh, gavels and strikers for the gavels. That's cool. So I, I have a question about those. Um, when I think of a gavel, I think of a real classic, uh, not busy grain, kind of a you know a darker color stain. Do they ever request gavels that are like some of the crazy stuff you see with knife handle scales, like burls and stuff? Or is that kind of, is anything like that? Do they ever ask for stuff like that? Or is it more traditional? Uh, I had uh, some some of the female judges actually work, uh, wanted some you know non-traditional either wood types or shapes. And you have to steer them away from things like a burl 
even a stabilized burl because it's a striking instrument if you're yeah. going to use it. So I don't want your, my burl exploding on your event. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so I try to I try to steer them towards you know either extremely hard exotic or the maples um, that are you know something hard that's going to if they're going to use it if they're not going to use it you can make it out of anything yeah yeah and you still do woodworking stuff I am I haven't been able to work in the shop for about three years because one I didn't have a shop and two I've been dealing with some pretty serious spinal health issues oh okay I gotcha because I noticed on your on your Instagram you do cutting boards as well I used to do some cutting boards way back when one piece uh, natural edge slab cutting board, which is what I would love to do. But had um, my wife and a couple of relatives wanted some certain kinds of cutting board, and it didn't go so well. Or you know, they looked really good. Uh, they didn't hold up to moisture uh, and weather changes too okay. well. Yeah. And I and I think the reason is Maryland that that part of Southern Maryland where we used to live uh, right before we moved here to Tennessee, the moisture changes greatly. I mean, 30, 40% in a day. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually did a lot of work. I spent some time working in Baltimore. I love that I'm area. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, cause I, like I used to work for a company that did airport baggage conveyors and we did a big project for, uh, Southwest airlines at BWI. Um, it was actually, it was actually a really terrible time in my life. Um, so for 9-11, I had actually just started on September 9th. I'd started a job in Eagle, Colorado. And pretty much from there, for the next five years, I was working like almost entirely in the U.S. And do you, you remember the D.C. shooter? Oh, yes. The, the one gas station that the person was shot at, yeah. I, I got gas there five minutes before that guy was shot that exact oh same gas station. And so it, my wife and I were, we were newly married. We were living in a fifth wheel. There's a, it was like an urban fifth wheel park close to there. And I was working night shift. And so this was going on. There's, you know, the anthrax going on and it was such a, there's such an ease. Right. And, then not only that, we also had a peeping Tom in our trailer. <laughs> and what happened was like, we were watching a movie and this one night I wasn't working and, and the trailer was moving. And I was like, what the heck is that? And my wife goes, oh, it happens every night at this time. And you know, we're, we're like from rural, right? My wife grew up on a farm. The town that we live in at the time was like 8,000 people. And you go into like Baltimore and the DC area, it's crazy. And I was like, well, what the heck is that noise? We, and my wife just didn't think anything of it. And so I thought, this is not right. And so I went and grabbed a, a big, huge flashlight, one of those ones you can use, like uh, a big, huge mag light. And I went and yeah. looked, and there's this this kid, probably 12 years old, up on the ladder of our fifth wheel, trying to trying to see in. Anyways, that that was a long story. I ended up grabbing the kid down there, and I was always kind of worried about, you know, what you can do. I, I don't want to like get charged myself with anything, right? But I said this is so. Anyways, I called the campground security up at the front. I said, I'm going to bring this kid down. We need to find out what the deal is. I'd like to call the police, yada, yada. And the guy said, okay, but you can't really put hands on the kid. And I'm like, well, how am I going to keep him there? And so what I told the kid to do, I said, listen, I've got this, this pickup truck It's a big Chevy Dually. I said, you stand right in the front of it. If you move to the left or the right, I'm going to run you over. <laughs> it was a, it was a foiled plan. I mean, of course I wasn't going to run him over. We, we got like maybe a half a block down and he just took off and ran and I couldn't catch him. But 
Oh, that that was that happened. I think two nights later, that guy was shot at the the gas station there, and I was like, it was like seven minutes before after I'd left. I'm like, wow, um, crazy. And then also, interestingly enough, too, this how small this world is. Um, the one he uh, does a YouTube, David Irving Evader Knives. He's also on Instagram. He was at that gas station within about ten minutes of me being there as well. And it's funny because oh, I've, I've featured him on my viewers and he's one of the very early viewers knives videos I did. And uh, we follow each other on Instagram now and he's, he's got a YouTube channel and stuff. But it's so funny how connected uh, we actually are. But, but anyways, that was, that, sorry, that was quite a bit of an offshoot there, but that was my experience with Baltimore living in that area. Yeah, it sounds about like um, not as notorious, but it sounds like a lot of my experiences going in and out of Baltimore. You never know. Um when a shot might ring out. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever go to the, what, what was that crab place, G&M, for their crab cakes? You know, I am one of the few people that's from that area, you know, raised in North Carolina, you know, that Middle Eastern seaboard. Yeah. I can't stand blue crab. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it tastes, I, the only way I can describe it is it tastes dirty to me. Really? Um, Oh, that's it funny. has this weird flavor, but I love other kinds of crab. Okay, yeah. I yeah. could eat it every day. Just blue crab? Oh, yeah. Not happening. It is unique, that's for sure. That's cool. So then uh, from Maryland, you moved to Tennessee, which you, which is where you live now? Yes. Uh, this is our my last house. Yep. Because, uh, you know, you it, as a married couple or a together couple, you always, anytime you move or find a place, it's a compromise. Mm -hmm. And we've been looking for our retirement place for three years. We each had some requirements that we didn't want to settle on. It was Christmas Eve of 2018, and my wife, Danette, was looking for houses for her mom and dad, and she found this place. It has every single one of our requirements, 18 acres, perfect house, a shop that's 30 by 48 two levels right now and it can be three. Oh wow it was just a shell of a building when i when we moved here uh there's a gentleman that used to own the property and was building it he passed away and his children didn't want to have anything to do with the place yeah yeah uh, we found that neither one of us had to compromise anyway we got here january 17th looked at it that night we put in and uh you know negotiated uh, our offer, and then the next morning we signed an agreement. So, oh wow, yeah, actually, I remember. I think at the time there was a knife that I was making for you, and at the time you actually placed the order. Your your shipping address would have been Maryland, and then I think you sent me an update saying, "Hey, I've got a new shipping address," or or maybe it was just one of the next knives. But I remember I've I've shipped to both places, and I remember you shared some pictures with me of your property, and it is incredible. It is such a beauty. It's like a piece of paradise, in my opinion. It is, and the uh, I actually had to do a, a cease and desist because there was a company near here that pulled my the picture the overhead from the real estate, yeah, and they were using it as some backdrop for you know come to Tennessee Paradise, really tourism or something. I was like, hey, that's my house. Don't be showing that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you work your whole life. You know, I'm in my fifties, and uh, you know, work thirty years to thirty three years to want your dream home and we're just blessed enough to find it. Mm -hmm. 
That's cool. And so is your wife still working? Yeah, she's still uh, working at the Pentagon. She retired from the Air Force after 24 years, uh, about 18, 20 months ago. And then she's continued working for the uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Asian Policy. Okay. Uh, So, you know, her last four months have been kind of exciting. Yeah, I bet. I bet. (laughs) But, you know, they're allowing everyone to telework, so we're here. And in Tennessee and loving it. Uh, you know, she may have to go back pretty soon. And at that point we'll make a decision because she doesn't have to work anymore. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That's crazy. Yeah. So I guess, wow. I mean, we don't want to, won't get in, into that here, but I bet there's some fascinating stuff that, uh, that she has heard or probably like information that she has and that, that you probably know about that would just be kind of interesting, but that's cool. Actually, you know, nothing, nothing from her side yep. of, you know, that would be like, Oh my God, that's awesome. Oh, really? um, but from a place I used to work at, I've, I've had some insider info from friends that still work there that it would curdle your toes. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't get into it. Yeah. I know it's, it's, uh, you know, we, we know some people here as well, um, that like we're with the Canadian military and, and there's stuff that happens all the time. Um, that nobody talks about like, well, for one thing, I'm just going to say it here cause whatever. Um, but like Russia is constantly invading Northern Canada <laughs> with their jets. Yeah. My, my boys are huge into military, like an aircraft. They can look at any airplane and tell you exactly what it was, uh, which, which militaries used it, what the different very, it's, it's incredible. It, I can't believe, especially my older son, he's got like a photographic memory and he's just obsessed with aircraft and military. Um, and so we go to all the museums and stuff like that. And we get to know a lot of the people and all these guys are ex air force guys that work at the military museums now. And, uh, it's crazy. Some of the stories they'll tell us and, and none of that stuff makes the news. It's really odd. That's a different topic for a different place and time. I think, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. you cool. know, I, I, I'll only say this, um, ever since I joined the military back in the late eighties and immediately being stationed in Europe during the Cold War, being all over the the sandbox, as they say, throughout my career, uh, Africa, Eastern Europe, uh, all over the Southwestern Asia. Uh, things happen every day that the people standing in line at Starbucks uh, will never know and can't appreciate. But I think if they did the opinion of, you know, their, their military folks, their, uh, intelligence agencies would change. Yeah. They would think of them as Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah. More than, and you know, more than the evil people that they think we are. Yeah. One of my bosses was with the British military and he was a mechanic uh, for some of the tanks and just talking to him, you know, after we'd have lunch break every day and finally after months, you'd start opening up a bit. And just some of the stories you'd say is like, you know, just we're, we're working on oil field equipment, but nobody's shooting at us. Right. And he says, you yeah. know, the bolts are bouncing around. I just, I couldn't imagine that type of a situation. You know, I see my neighbor outside shooting like groundhogs, gophers with his 22 and I'm always keeping an eye on like, okay, just got to make sure he's you know, being safe there, but I, I couldn't imagine it. So I, I do want to say, I truly appreciate your service and I thank you for your service. Um, 
And it's, it's, it is incredible. You know, I remember after 9-11, working at airports all the time, uh, a lot of the different places are be close to where there were different bases, right? And the soldiers, you'd see them lining up, uh, getting ready to be deployed or fly somewhere, maybe for training or something, I don't know. And I remember I, walked, I was walking on, into the airport, I was going to work, and I saw this old guy get out of his car. He's in a big Cadillac, and he starts yelling at this young guy in fatigues. And he's talking about how terrible it is and blah, blah, blah. And, and irregardless, I just said, sir, can I just tell you something? This young man, he didn't decide what he's going to fight. He just said, I'm going to serve my country. The people that we vote for, that that's what dictates what happens. I said, you can't fault this young man for doing what he's agreed to do. You know, I said, whether you agree with it or not, he might go to a different battle, uh, fight something else that you really believe. I said, it's not his decision. He's doing what he said he would. The people that you voted for are the ones that are sending him there. So if you have a problem with where he's going or where he's fighting, that's not his. That's not you to take up with him. That's you to take up with your leaders. And I just, I remember seeing that firsthand and I just couldn't believe this soldier. And he was just taking it from this old guy. He just got out of his Cadillac. He's, I don't know, it's, it's really disappointing. And, and I know what you mean uh, like that that sensory saying that people would see you differently if you knew if they knew what you actually did i, I think it's a yeah and you know you uh you join about 90 percent of your time is boring unless you know like my 10 years as a mechanic were almost never boring you know maybe at two percent of it because every air every airplane is different just like every car that comes off the assembly line is different Yet they might have the same kind of parts in every single one, but you know each one has. I think they have a personality. They, you know, they break differently. They fly differently. Hmm. Um, you know, so uh, you know we had uh, really good aircraft that were a, a joy to work on. Then we had the pigs. You know, yeah. used to call them Monday and Friday airplanes. Are the ones you didn't want if they were yeah. made on a Monday or Friday. The, the assembly line workers are either hung over or, you know, their minds on the, on the bar that weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a cool thing. Even when I go to the museums now and I look at all these aircrafts, I'm like this, it's no way to say it. It's just kick ass, right? I mean, it is pretty cool. doesn't matter what airplane oh, it is. Yeah. There's something just so rad about it. I mean, you got, uh, you know, the first thing you learn in, you know, about any kind of turbine engine or jet engine is, you know, people like, when you say it, they're like, I think you're saying something that you're not, you know, because it's suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Mm-hmm. That's how you, that's the first thing you learn about a turbine or a jet engine because you have the, you know, the intake, the compressor, ignition, exhaust. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and that, that sounds really, just like an internal combustion engine too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah same principles, just different ways of doing those things. Yeah. That's cool. And then, uh, like I noticed too, in the States, you guys call them turbines or turbines? Turbine. Okay. I had the... Well, actually, it's a turbine engine that has turbines in it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, That's really fascinating. So, um, you're retired now. Do you have a pilot's license? Oh, no. Gosh. No. I had thought about it at one time. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing that really piqued my interest as far as flying goes would be an ultralight. Yep. A glider, that would you know, be cool. or something, you know, something where more mechanical only. Yeah. 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 
I'm with you there. I mean, just gl- gliding is just a phenomenal experience. Yeah. I've never done it myself. My boys have done it quite a few times with the uh, air cadets. Um, actually, I think I'm too heavy for the gliders that they have. So even if I got an opportunity, um, I'm kind of involved with, with the cadets. I'm the, the sponsoring committee's chair. And so I have the chance to do all this stuff, except when we go gliding, they're like, would you like to go? And it depends how big the pilot is. You know, if he's a full-size man, then, then, then there's just a weight limit that I'm not allowed to fly. So I'm hoping one time I'll get a really skinny person up in the front, and then I can sit in the back and go for a ride. Yeah, there. It's a weight is a you know very important consideration with gliders. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the glider I went on, I was in Europe. I was in Europe, and I think it was in France. And you could just pay and take a ride in a professional glider. Actually, it was like on a Wednesday. The guy was bored. We we me and a guy I worked with we went, and uh, my buddy went first. He had like a twenty minute ride. Uh, they reset everything. I went up, and two hours later, we came back. We just had great air. Um, the pilot loved flying. Really? And he had, you know, hadn't had a chance to do it yeah. very much and just had really great air. And he said, um, in broken English, trying the best he could, you know, because he's French. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, yes, we're not going back anytime soon. <laughs> That's funny. I went, okay. You know, you just sit back. Yeah. And I've never had a better chance to meditate or ponder the greatness that surrounds us as in the silence of a glider. Yeah, I bet that's incredible. That'd be cool. I, I sent yeah, a, a GoPro up with one of my boys when they went. And uh, it, even just watching that footage, I was like, that is amazing. All you hear is the air moving over the windows and the wings. It's just like, and it's wow, it's so cool. Um yeah, my boys, well, my son's working on his glider's license. Um, actually, my, my second son will be doing that in, a, in another year here, too. But we've got plans. They're itching. We want to build our own ultralight. And I think I'm drawn to the same type of flight. Like, we've got a lot of friends that have airplanes, little Cessnas, and my dad's looking to buy an airplane right now. Um, but I love the idea of just something that you could make yourself uh, I just recently picked up a TIG welder and I'm trying to learn to weld aluminum so that I can make like some type of an aircraft. Um, but it's so fascinating. Just, just like you said, that simple mechanical flight, you know, minimal controls and even not being completely shrouded in, you know, with a big fuselage, just kind of feeling the air over you. And uh, I told my boys that I would like something that flies as slowly as possible. I said, that'd be a really cool record to set the, the slowest flight on earth. But, um, yeah, really, oh, really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I've always wanted to build my own uh, uh, helicopter. You know, you have those little helicopter kits exactly like you have the ultralight kits. Yeah. I've and built. you build it yourself in your garage. <laughs> Dude, I've seen those um, in that. The comedian and ventriloquist. Yeah, the, the, the famous comedian Jeff Dunham, the, the, the ventriloquist. He does that. He built his own uh, helicopter. Really? Yeah, that's crazy. See, I'm not I'm not big on the helicopters because I always think that if if an engine dies on an airplane, you can glide it down. Uh, but just recently, I've learned that there are tactics where you can kill a helicopter's engine, and and so, so there's a certain technique or something you can do where you can control your descent. Yes, I had no clue about that because I just thought it was a game over. Oh, the you know something's wrong with the turbine of the helicopter. Now we're over. You know, but apparently you can do other stuff. But then even a homemade helicopter, that that sounds just terrifying to me. It's, uh, you know, you buy the kit, um, you build that kit, 
then you have it certified, and then it's okay. You know, as long and then you you're taught how to you you have to learn how to fly it and get a regular helicopter pilot's license. Oh, so, okay. You know. Yeah, what what type of engines do they use in those homemade ones? Are they like a turbine, or is it just a regular uh, internal combustion engine? Both. You can get both. Oh, okay. It depends on the size of your the kit, how much money you're willing to you know that you have to put on it, and your knowledge. Because uh, they're louder, they're more expensive, they're just horrible to operate. But if you're going to build a helicopter, I would use a turbine engine because. In the, case, in the event that you, you do lose power, those are the ones that are easier to uh, do that weird thing they do with the rotor in order to spin the actual helicopter so you don't you stand a, less of a chance of you know, splatting the earth like a bug. Yeah, yeah. You think you'll ever do that? You think you ever will uh, build a helicopter? No. Um, Money is the issue. Yeah. Um, if I had, you know, I've got a long-term plan to get the shop the machines I want to get for the shop. Um, and then once I get that where I want it to be, I think I will build a, an old Model T pickup or okay. or an ultralight uh, airplane. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Uh, so with your shop setting it up, um, I'd be curious, what kind of tools are you looking to get? How are you looking to set it up? Right now it has like a basement but it's only earthed in on two sides. Okay. Uh, so the what I call the the ground or the downstairs, I want it to be my metal shop. That's okay. how I have it wired. Um, I've got the 220 outlets surrounding two walls. So I want that to be the metal shop with my welders. I want to get a uh, either a universal mill or a vertical mill and a horizontal mill, a metal lay. And I want to teach myself how to do what I don't know how to do. And then the main floor will be woodworking and gunsmithing and all other things mechanical. And then if I get a chance to do the third floor, it'll be like a little office man cave kind of thing. Oh, that'd be cool. That sounds neat. That's but a- I, you know, I'm a, when it comes to making, building, I'm a jack of all trades, you know, because, yeah. you know, as a kid, you, if you wanted it, you had to go do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the military, I've been in some really cool situations where um, you had to be creative and make something from nothing, repair things when you didn't really have the parts to repair them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, things like that. And I think as a millwright, you can appreciate that. Yeah. One thing, uh, like the thing I noticed too is that I'm amazed whenever I try a new skill set that I don't have. I can see the areas that I've learned from other different skills that are helping out. You know, it, it seems like uh, when once you start making and say if you practice in machining and then you switch over to welding, even though you would think those things have nothing to do with each other, there are aspects of it. Even the fact that, oh, okay, you know, you can see angles like, is this a good 90 or, or the distance of a gap? If you're, you know, you're doing a butt weld and you want a certain distance between it. You know, if, if you're a machinist, you could probably be like, okay, I, I, I can eyeball roughly a sixteenth or an eighth of an inch. You go to welding and they'll say, okay, set this at an eighth of an inch apart. Even little things like that translate. And I find, you know, there's that expression of a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, 
I don't know. That has a bit of a derogatory sense sometimes, but sometimes I, th- I find it's just incredible how all these different things kind of relate and they make you better at other things. You know, the, the one thing we used to do at the airports was a lot of stainless steel trim. Um, you know, those carousels, they look like hat, like moon shapes that go around and bring your luggage oh, up yeah. for you. And they're all capped yeah. with the stainless steel trim. And the way that we did ours, there's, there's three companies that do baggage conveyors in the U.S., um, but the way we did our trim was different than anybody else in that we wanted our two pieces to look like the two joints were touching, but they had to have freedom in there because somebody's going to step on it. And if they were a little bit tight, uh, what would happen is you could almost like bind one edge of the stainless steel, like the little lip under the other one. And then you've got a yeah. little pinch point or you'll scrape the rubber coating on those pallets, the little things that go around. And so we always had, we call it like an invisible gap. So it looked like the two pieces of steel were touching, but in reality, they were both free floating. So you could bend either side of that joint up and down, but it looked like it was, is touching. And I remember, um, I, I did trim stainless steel trim for probably three years before I got good at it. And then at the end, I mean, it, it was a really hard skill to get and they would send me from job to job, uh, just to trim out the job. So I would, I'd run some of the jobs and then I'd be working in Vegas and like, okay, we got to go to Burbank. We got to this, that and then long beach. And I'd literally, I'd just fly to an airport, work there for two days. The next day I'd fly to another one, work for two days and jumping around and it's funny because when I started making knives, the grinding came very easy to me. And I honestly think that has to do with me trimming airport baggage carousels out. You know what I mean? I think that skill set transferred and just grinding material to shaving it and being able to see the, I don't know, I'm convinced of it. I might be totally wrong. That might be a bogus story, but I think that's one of the biggest things that has helped me with my grinding knives is that I did so many airport baggage trims when I was, you know, in a different career doing something completely different. I get exactly what you're saying um, because some of these skills um, and methodology and theory of mechanic that I learned as an aircraft mechanic and as a fine furniture maker, uh, wood turner, and now that I'm getting into teaching myself uh, metalworking as well as learning from YouTube, books, and real-life people, a lot of these skills are, they overlap. They, they're the same definition or different definitions for the same problem. Mm-hmm. If you were, yeah. you know, and I think that, you know, going back just a bit, the jack of all trades, I, I think, um, society has turned that into a negative term mm-hmm. sometimes, but I, I, I wear it as a badge of honor. You know, yeah. I'm a jack, I, I'm a jack of all trades. And I can do a lot of different things. You know, I don't get paid to do any one thing, Mm -hmm. so I'm not necessarily a master, but I can do a lot of things about a lot of things, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And the things I don't know, because of my background, your life experiences, education, you combine those two, you, as a mechanic, you can figure out how to do a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I have a lot of respect for, uh, like, industrial mill rights of, you know, say a decade and a half, two decades ago when you're taking care of a factory. Yeah. And one day you're working on machine X, tomorrow machine Y goes down. You've never seen the inside of machine Y, but you have to go over there, figure out how to open it up, figure out what's wrong, fix it, get it back operating. Yeah. And those people I have 
like, like put them up on a pedestal of respect for. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's fascinating because I, I, I like how you kind of mentioned that Jack of all trades has sort of become negative. I, I think, I, I think that's recent. And even like you said, you go back two decades and, there's even then more of a sense, you know, I, I used to collect the old, I think popular mechanics had a, an old series of books. They're probably from the fifties or sixties. And even that magazine, you, know, you go, you go back and into its earlier days, it was full of all different stuff. It was like, okay, here's how to, here's how to weld with this lead based solder. And then here's how to make a minnow trap with some glass jars. And then here's how to do, you know what I mean? And, and it kind of seemed yeah. to be celebrated more. And, and I think now also with the advent of technologies, everything's uh, forced into spe- specializations, it seems. Right. I mean, okay, I'm going to learn to write computer software. Well, you got to pick which one, or if you're going to develop apps, you got to pick a platform. And I don't know, really know much about those things, but it seems that w- with this technology and the way that everything's moving, everything's more specialized, even with, you know, auto dealerships, right? You can't take your car to a mechanic cause he hasn't paid for the software license uh, that's up to date to fix your vehicle. So you have, you know what I mean? It's just kind of odd how everything's shifted towards that. And I liked your comment about how the Jack of all trades has become more negative recently. And I think I've never thought about it like that, but I think you're spot on with that. I think it's a, kind of a recent phenomenon it's kind of interesting. It is because, you know, Jack of all trades or handyman, if you will, mm-hmm. if you go back when, when I was growing up and even before, you know, let's say eighties, nineties and before, uh, a handyman was a good thing. Yeah. You know, it was somebody you knew or somebody that somebody you knew knew at work, at church, at home, friends of a friend, whatever that was older, had had a career and maybe a mechanical engineer or, a contractor or a builder, something. Yep. Right now they're retired. Now they just like to tinker around. They they still have that that itch to work with their hands, and they can fix anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you can call them up and do a drywall repair, build an extra room, uh, fix your computer back then. You know, yeah, uh, whatever. Fix your blender. Uh, I guess that would be a better example than your computer. But you know, fix anything in the house. Yeah, and it was a good thing. Yeah. Now, you know, handymen are just um, ne'er-do-wells looking to, you know, (laughs) pick up some Mad Dog 2020 money. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, too, is our products have changed as well. Um, You know, if you get something that's old, like I, I end up finding this meat slicer, commercial meat slicer, and there's so much information underneath the covers, right? The diagrams and uh, even now some things like some blenders you buy, they don't even give you the wiring diagram on the inside. And it's like, well, what if I need to replace something or fix something? It's, it's interesting. I always like looking at old appliances and, and taking covers off. And it's incredible the information they leave the consumer because they'll think that, you know what, he may need to fix this and he may actually try to fix this. But nowadays, I mean, it's, oh it's not like that. You know, you you buy a brand new car and they put a big piece of plastic over the engine so you can't even see it, you know? Oh, God, I don't know how many times I got in trouble and spanked as a kid from the, <laughs> from three up, taking <laughs> things apart to learn how they work and putting them back together. Yeah. Um, and I think the only reason I got spanked was because I also had a smart mouth. And <laughs> while they were yelling at me for taking them apart and putting it back together, I said, but it works now or it works better. Yeah. And I'd sit there with my little grin and then they explain me. Yeah. A little smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> and then you end up being an aircraft mechanic, right? <laughs> it's, exactly. Yeah. You know, 
my first car when I uh, was a teenager, you know, Toyota Corolla, 85, to- no, 80 something Toyota Corolla, had the louvers in the back window, you know, thought I was cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't start one day. I never worked on a Corolla. You know, I was probably 16 and a half, 17. I figured it out. Yep. You know, because it was, it didn't have an uh, ECU, didn't have any chips. Um, you figure out that check the uh, uh, distributor cap, make sure the points are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned out to be a crack in the distributor cap. You just go down the auto port store, auto parts store, buy one, put it on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know many sixteen-year-old kids nowadays that could figure that out. No. I'm sure there are. But. There are, but it's so few. You know, it's, I mean, I obviously love technology. I like computers. Um, but man, kids are just totally getting away from, uh, within a certain sense, I think there might be a little bit coming back to actual like physical skills and, and mechanical things. You know, like my boys have picked up some old pickup trucks and they're real eyesores, but. You know, my one son's, they're all little like Datsuns or Nissans, and my one's an 83. And I thought, you know, that's perfect to teach him the fundamentals of, of the automobile. With the vehicles nowadays, there's not a hope, right? I mean, the best you can do is get your little OBD whatever scan tool and plug it in and find what the fault code is, you know. Um, oh, my God, that's cool. You know, you know the, the recent story about my wife's car blowing up. Yeah. When we're trying to move from, find, make her final move from Maryland to here during the middle of this COVID issue. Yeah. And we just wound up having to scrap it because is it an engine thing? Is it an ECU thing? And by the way, you can't change, you can't replace a Kia engine without a bunch of other things being changed too. Really? Um, and to the tune of six grand. Wow. And how old is that car? Only seven years. Yeah. It only had 125,000 miles on it. Wow. You can buy replacement engines or you can get a used engine and put in it, you know, from like a rear end wet car. Yep. But you have to take all of the electronics with almost the whole wiring harness because they're, you know, uh, programmed together. And I'm like, oh, God, you're stupid, Kia. But anyway, so wow. we just jumped it. Yeah, that's too bad. But if it had been an 83 uh, little pickup truck, which all of the little early 80s pickups were, the compacts were the same, the Ford. Uh, Rangers, the Mazda B series, yep. the Datsun, the Toyota, all of them were about the same, and it was so easy to work on. Yeah, yeah, I know it, it's pretty cool. The one thing I don't like with all vehicles around that age, there's so many vacuum lines, and I, I'm not good with those. Yes. Everything's Everything vacuum line this, vacuum line oh this, and God. it's funny because I I remember seeing pictures on Facebook probably like ten years ago of one of my wife's cousins sitting in the back of this truck drinking beer in a lawn chair with his gun. And um, the gentleman who originally bought it, I don't know what his name was, but everybody called him Doc Snyder. And so he's got this 83, it's a Datsun Hustler. And what this guy would do is he would take ammonia and go and kill gophers for all the farmers around here with this truck. And he actually had a company called uh, Doc Snyder Gopher Exterminator. And so he has this hand-painted lettering on the side of this truck. And it is really cool. Like, it's legit. And it says Doc Snyder. And on the side of the box, it says the Gopher Exterminator. And then it also says that on the, on the back tailgate. And there's the guy's old phone number on there. 
It was interesting. Inside the truck, we found some tickets for when he got his ammonia tank filled up. And there's a funny story with this truck that one year he went to put it in the Strathmore parade. We have, uh, well, they call it Heritage Days. It's our big rodeo weekend. And he put this thing in the parade when you're the gopher exterminate. He took a whole bunch of dead gophers and tied them on strings and hung it around the <laughs> around his truck as decorations. And he got kicked out of the parade. <laughs> Going through a parade with a whole bunch of dead oh. dead groundhogs tied to this truck, the gopher exterminator. So it's really cool history of this truck. So I'm I'm kind of glad we have it. But oh, and, and you know, all I can think of is uh, in the '70s, people would quote unquote pimp out their car. Yeah. In uh, the bigger the, you know, like the old Buicks, the Cadillac, you put those little round tassel balls. Yeah, so, yeah. Or, or all I can think about, but they're gophers. That's all <laughs> yeah. the vision I have in my head. <laughs> yeah, he's coming around throwing out candy for, from this thing with a bunch of dead varmints on it. <laughs> oh, <that is> so <laughs> Johnny, funny. look away. Yeah, I know, that's that funny. But and, and so anyways, it ended up on this farm and they would just bomb this truck. And when something stopped working, they would just take it off or I don't know, cause there's so many of these vacuum lines that have a screw in them. <laughs> so they disconnected it from wherever it went and put a screw in it. So I'm having a heck of a time trying to figure out where everything goes, but it, we got it running and it, it's running okay. Um, but we still need a lot of work to do to it. But well, you know, you should video it if not for YouTube or your own, your family history. Yeah. It'll be something showing you and the, you and the boys as they grow. Uh, from where they are when they got in the truck to when they're driving down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, and, uh, my oldest actually this this year he's he'll be old enough to go for his driver's license, so we're hoping to have it on the like road ready for then. Um, but we'll see. He also needs to do some practicing. He doesn't he doesn't like driving for some reason. <laughs> I told him he's not allowed to get his pilot's license until he has his driver's license. So hopefully that'll motivate him. <laughs> you know that that is strange. Um, a lot of teenagers that I know of don't like driving, have no wish to go do it. I know. I like if you lived in New York City, yeah, I get it, you know, but you live in the middle of nowhere, you're not going to get anywhere without driving. No. I remember when I was like that age, that's all I wanted. Actually, I was, um, when I was 15, I was volunteering in Moscow, Russia with an organization uh, rebuilding orphanages. And I ended, up, I ended up, I had my 16th birthday there and I came back. And when I came back, I was obviously old enough that I could go get my driver's license. But I got into a little bit of trouble in Russia. And I kind of got sent home like a week early as a disciplinary measure <laughs> and to make it worse my parents said well now you got to wait six months to get your driver's license and that was they ended up only doing like a month or something but even that was torture because you know i'd planned i went to russia for six months like i was all by myself and i knew that was my game plan all my buddies were looking forward to me getting back and i'm gonna have my license and we're gonna cruise and oh man it was terrible but, but yeah my yeah, son has no desire to share to what happened in russia uh, I guess we could. Sure, why not? No, I'm just kidding. No, actually, I kidding. no. We, I, you know what? It's it's what it is. So we were with a, like a very conservative uh, Christian organization. Um, I mean, I grew up in church and I'm a Christian stuff, but I, I wasn't trying to be bad, but I wanted to drink beer and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and I guess that was one of the advantages of being in Moscow is that nobody cared, right? If you got money, you can do whatever you want. And so, yeah, we would, uh, we'd go out on the weekends and we would go to a restaurant and have like one Budweiser and I would just be like, whoa, this is crazy stuff. I didn't even know if I liked it. And then same thing, you can just get out of the Metro, like off the subway or whatever and 
you buy a pack of camels and and you choke in the first one's like ah, i don't know anyways we had a couple of of really goody two-shoes people that were actually spying on us they're following us around moscow and they took pictures of us smoking and drinking and reported it to the the guy in charge so that was uh that was how i got sent home early <laughs> but, <laughs> You got busted by spies in Russia. Yep. Yeah, that's right. It actually <laughs> Just was, tell that story. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the one thing we learned, though, is that so around Moscow, there's these uh, castles that were built for Catherine the Great. And one of my really good friends there, his name was Daniel, he's from New Zealand, and he's a big rock climber. And so we would go out on the weekends and we'd climb these old castles. They, they were never finished, right? They'd start building these things, um, but you weren't allowed to climb them. But we very quickly learned, like, we'd start climbing. We'd have ropes and, you know, he had all of his gear and, and we'd be halfway up there and then the, the police would come. And they tell you, you're not allowed to smoke or you're not allowed to climb. And so he'd just reach into our, our pockets and throw them some cigarettes. <laughs> and they'd be like, ah, harsho, keep going, you know. It was funny. Is uh, oh, you're allowed to do that? And then give them some cigarettes. Oh, and they'd stand there and talk with you and chat with you and they'd pass you stuff. So it was interesting. Uh, amazing what you can get in Russia for a couple of cigarettes. <laughs> well, you know, um, unrelated story. I got uh, busted in England when I was stationed there for repelling down the white cliffs of Dover, which apparently is frowned upon. Really? And uh, I got in trouble for spelunking in yeah. the wrong place while I was there. And But when the the two uh, police officers, uh, the British bobbies that came to, I'm using air quotes, sorry, to arrest us for uh, repelling and then trying to, you know, rope climb back up the white cliffs of Dover, they, uh, one was a, a female officer it was after my first marriage after i divorced so i'm single now and i'm like you know i'm gonna try this to see if i can't get out of being arrested by hitting on this female cop i mean and she was it was a it was a chore i'll put it that way um uh, you had to you had to you know really reach down and uh dig from that intestinal fortitude to hit on this one and uh, but i did and she was like hey you know, we went out twice and, uh, we went out twice and I didn't get arrested. So, you know, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that is a good one. And then, uh, and then after the second time, it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm free. You're gone. No, I, uh, I learned, you know, if you're with somebody, you don't want to hurt their feelings. You don't want to say, Hey, I don't want to go out with you anymore. Cause I don't want to be seen with someone so ugly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't approach it that way. You do something that, you have figured out in your conversations that she doesn't like in a guy, <laughs> you know, either, Hey, I like these kinds of, this kind of music, or I like to do this, you know, or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with her, I just decided I was going to be, I'm Mormon <laughs> and, and I can't do this. I can't do that. And if you're with me, you can't do this either. Oh, that's funny. And, uh, so, hey, you can't drink. We can go to the pub and have fun, but you can't drink. Yeah. And I can't drink. And she was like, yeah, I can't be with you. <laughs> and I was like, yes! That's funny. <laughs> oh, that's a good story. Hey, the things you do to, you know, when you're young and trying to have fun, you know, harmless fun. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the establishment is saying, trying to, no, young man, you can't have this kind of fun. Mm -hmm. it's good it's good good healthy clean hey, fun but you know? we fought fast on our feet which again 
comes from, I think, our talent as that we have in whatever making we do. Yep, yep, that's true. That's very true. So I have one thing I'd like to ask you about. Do you know how many knives that you have? Because you're quite the knife collector. Oh, I know it's over 100. Wow. Uh, um, knives, I know that a lot of them are yours. Yeah. Uh, another maker of Black Rock Knives. Yep. Uh, uh, Ken, he is a great guy. Uh, and one thing I can just say for the audience is if you're a knife collector, if you want to become a knife collector, if you want just one knife to go hunting with, and you pick a good quality maker, you have to have patience if you want a handmade thing. Yeah. I know this is, I'm going to take a left turn here and I apologize. No problem. Because there's a misunderstanding. Uh, the essential craftsman talked about this briefly, touched the surface, didn't even scratch it, but forging versus stock removal. Yeah. Right? I have a forged knife, a forged hat, a forged hunter, uh, a couple other forged knives, and then all the rest of my collection. All of them are stock removal, mm-hmm. and I think the stock removal knives are metallurgically more sound. Yep. They certainly hold an edge better. Uh, I could go on with my edges. They're just better knives. Yeah. And I think almost every way, the one exception to it is a forged knife. I've got two of his. They're exactly the same knife, and I cannot remember the gentleman's name off the top of my head. Uh, he's an older gentleman. He was on uh, Forging Fire twice. Okay. Uh, he makes his knives, the, the knife style I have, it looks almost like a straight razor with a knife handle. Okay. He heats them a precision bar of a special steel, heats that to a certain temperature, presses it almost like the old uh, the manufacturing press um, between two precision dies comes out with the 90% shape of the knife and then, you know, you cut off the waist and then grind every, you know, you perfect your bevels, things like that. Mm-hmm. That's the only exception that I will say that is a good sound quality quote unquote forged knife. Yeah. Uh, but the ones I have from I, I won't mention mention the gentleman's name, but I have a hand forged knife from a very famous guy. Yep. I would be afraid to hit a tree with it. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Huh. And for, well, nope. I take that back. The other really good forged knife I have is your kitchen knife uh, that I have. Yeah, that's, that was the very first forged knife I made. Uh, but even that too. Uh, that still to this day hasn't had to be resurfaced. Really? Well, that's good. But you did find a you did find a crack in that one. Uh, yes. But here's what I learned about that, and I forgot to tell you. I actually bought a like a USB kind of microscope. Okay. It's just a crack in, I guess, what would be surface scale. Okay. Yep. Some of that outer. It does not portion. go below that. Oh, okay. Yep. It does not go below that. Oh, okay. At all. So it's a very sound knife. Well, that's good. Yeah. And by all means, like, like we discussed, I guess for the audience, um, this was the very first forged kitchen knife I ever did. And then you purchased it and then, um, you had it for about a week or two and then you notice a crack show up. 
And so my offer still stands that by any means that gives you any issues, send it back. I'll make you a new one or fix it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I'm, I'm glad it's holding its edge. Well, I guess that's, that's one of the important parts, but. Oh, and I, and it's not like I use it. I've only used it twice. Yeah. That's my, it, it's a big knife. And that's the one I use for, you know, onions, peppers, all my vegetable chopping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's used all the time on a hardboard, hardwood cutting board. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By the way, people quit using your kitchen knives on stone countertops. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Please, no kidding. Or the glass that you see them selling these glass cutting boards. I'm like, I yeah, <laughs> maybe that's you're good ruining for, your knife. Yeah, yeah. Well, not ruining the knife, but ruining the edge. Yeah, and it's interesting because, uh, like, forging is something that. I I love the look of it. When you see somebody who can do a really nicely forged knife and leave some of that texture in it and then put the grinds in, I think that looks so good. And at the same time, I know that uh, I think if you're if you're good at what you do, you if you're good at forging, you can get a, a really good performing blade. If you're good at stock removal, you can get a good performing blade. Um, until you have both of those, that's not necessarily the case, right? Um, like I obviously do like pretty much exclusively stock removal and, and working on that. And I, and people always ask, why don't you do more forging? And the main reason is like, I, I'm still learning about stock removal, right? Like I don't feel like, I think if I get bored with it, I'll be like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's, let's focus on some forging. Um, but at the same time, I do believe I can make a better stock removal knife than a forge knife. Like, like the one that you purchased from me, it went really well. I, I didn't have many issues. I was like, this is crazy, but I've, I've probably ruined six knives, uh, since that one. And I just don't know why. Right. So it's, it's incredible. The learning curve. Oh yeah. It's uh, yeah. I, I've tried, uh, I forged some other things, not knives. Uh, it is incredibly difficult and i know you touched on it on one of your previous podcasts in your damascus debate yeah um this is just todd speaking i would go so far as to extend that um damascus uh conclusion that you drew to most forge knives uh no matter what steel they use because they can't control the heat they can't control the the quenching of that knife like you can with a stock remover. Uh, yeah. And with the setup that you have, um, you have a proper heat treat oven and you're not using a, like a propane forge or a coal mm. forge, something like that. Yeah. I know there are people out there that, oh, they've you know, been doing it for years, decades that say that they're really good at the, uh, getting the right heat all the time. Yeah. I'm skeptical of that because, you know, I have, tried it i've been there when people have tried it i've got the knives that they say that they were good at yeah i'm i'm skeptical huh. i think for me yeah, I, well i will say this the the forge knife i told you that i would be afraid to uh chop a tree with uh you know those uh like hardness testers yeah a rockwell hardness tester um well one of the things that we have access to in on you know military air force bases or airports or anywhere that you uh, use precision equipment yeah. or permit precision testing laboratories where they test things like that mm-hmm. or calibrate test equipment. And I had a friend of mine, you know, test this knife for hardness, and there's not a single. Uh, he tested 
by inch along one side of the blade, uh, and it's an 11 and a half inch blade, mm-hmm. cutting edge. There's not a single inch that's the same hardness as another inch. Really? Like how much of a difference not, was it? It's uh, plus or minus 11. Oh, okay. That's a lot. Because I've heard of having <laughs> yeah. one or two, right? Like one or, I've, I've heard that. Oh, no, no, no. That typical. would bother me. Oh, you okay. know, I think two or three would be okay. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> that is pretty, is, that is crazy. And, you know, the, the guy who sold you the night, he just, oh, I'm the best there ever was. I've been on TV. I've been this, I've been that. You know, this blade's going to be, you know, have the toughness of at least an RC, whatever he said. Yeah. And then what it turned out to be is in the high 20s to mid 30s. So it's not that hard. On the RC scale? At all. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. That's like a, that's like a, that's like a kneeled 01. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, and with that big of a discrepancy, you almost think you're just going to hear that thing go ping, you know, when it's sitting on the shelf, because there's got to be a lot of tension in that blade, you know? To have such yeah. different um, hardnesses. That's crazy. The, uh, the guy who did the testing for me, uh, he does nothing on social media, but he makes his own uh, knives, swords for some like real-life reenacting. Okay, yeah. He told me, he said, I can take that thing and re- relieve the stress and you know reheat-treat it if you want. Mm-hmm. You do it right. I'm like, nah. I just, this is the way I bought it. I, you know, now I know what I have. Yeah. And that's, that to me is my uh, cap on the shoulder whenever I think about getting a forged knife from somebody. <laughs> you know, it whispers in my ear. Yeah. Psst. You know, go for somebody who really speaks to you with their design and their methods. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry for that big left turn. I had a question yeah. of what you were talking about with your knives and uh, the issue you were having with, you know, no knife order or 17 in one day. Did you find any correlation between when you had those spikes to whether it was related to about the same time you made a special Instagram post or a YouTube video or someone had tagged you in a post about one of your knives? Uh, definitely the YouTube. It's funny because when I first thought about doing YouTube, uh, some of the YouTube channels I watched, I, I, I watched some kind of mild prepper channels, not people that are crazy, but just practical things. And I remember one of one of the channels I watched, he hit 40,000 and he said, well, you know what? I'm going to quit my job now because I'm making more money on YouTube than I was at my job. And I thought, wow, that's insane. And then even there's another, he's a Canadian YouTuber, Joe Robino, a lot of outdoor camping, stuff like that. I think, I think he's coming on a million subscribers, but he did about the same thing. I think he had like 30,000 when he quit his job and just did YouTube full time. And I thought, oh, this is crazy. And, and I mean, now I, the one thing with the knife making stuff, the, the amount of ads that you get on your videos is way lower. It's probably, probably like one sixth of what say, a cycling video would get or a cooking video somehow it's deemed because it's knife related it's not advertiser friendly people don't want to be associated with knives violence i guess i don't know um so that right on its own not like they don't use knives in a kitchen video no exactly you know what i mean like uh, you know you can be a gamer and, and play incredibly violent video games and get a really high cpm that's kind of the, the uh, cpm is kind of the denotation to how much money you get per thousand views and so people 
people always ask like, oh, you know, must be nice having a big YouTube channel. And, and it's not a big one. It's a teeny channel in my opinion. But I'm like, you know, the, the biggest value for me with YouTube is that it's helped me with my knife business. And I don't look at YouTube as an opportunity, be like, Hey, you know what? I could really make a lot of money. And I don't, I mean, I haven't done any videos for like two months now. Um, but there's the other side of that. Like I'm, I think in order to make money on YouTube, you need to like come either need to have so many, so much sponsorship or be so sensational, right? That I, I just figure I would rather use it as a tool for my knife business. And so, so for your question there, absolutely. If I do, like if I make a video about a knife, I will get like 20 emails saying, listen, how much is it? I want to buy that knife right now. Um, and so that definitely helps. And I even look at the visits to my, my site. And after I put a knife making video, they just, it's probably like 10 times what they normally is just on that one day. So, uh, definitely, definitely a huge increase. Not so much with Instagram. I think a lot of the Instagram people are looking to you for uh, to see what you're making so they can apply that to their making or to be inspired or something. That's, you know, I don't follow many people on Instagram because I want to buy their products. I just want to, I'm just fascinated with what they share and, and what I could learn from the things they share. But YouTube is definitely, um, definitely get a lot of spike when that happens. Yeah. I, I had, um, I had kind of assumed that I know when, whenever I would get a notification from YouTube, you just posted a knife video. I would immediately just go to homesteadknives.com <laughs> and see if it was up for sale yeah. <laughs> and just buy it right before I watch the video. That's funny. Um, I mean, cause that's, and, and I'm not like, oh my God, you know, he's crazy obsessive. No, you, I believe that your knives are just that good and uh, not just awesome to look at, but to use. And I collect knives. Yeah. You know, why not collect what I consider to be among the best? Yeah. Well, thank and, you. A, a funny story, and I think that you'll, to me, it's funny. I saw, I got the notification, you posted a video, and it was the chopper. And this has been a while back. Yeah. It's a big knife. And I bought it. Then I watched the video. And you start, the, the whole video, you're complaining about mistakes <laughs> you've made with the knife. <laughs> And you just bought it. <laughs> and, and, and then I get the knife and I'm like, this thing's perfect. I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> buyer's remorse before you even. Oh, get absolutely it. not. That, that's yeah. hilarious. Oh, no, and then I'm watching the video and I can obviously see that you're being overly critical of your own work. But Yeah, yeah. And I think a good, uh, not just a good person, but a good, I hate the word maker. I hate it. Yeah. Um, but I don't have another word, uh, another whatever, another maker. Uh, I think you can't be good without being critical of your own work. No, that's true. Absolutely. Others, everything you do is like, oh, wow, I did re really good. And it's like, you know, that you need to have a balance because you need to maintain enthusiasm and excitement. Like I kind of talked about that last episode where I was so excited when I made my first knife. Um, I still have it and it is, I look back at it now. I'm like, Oh my word, this is, it's just gaudy. Like the portions are terrible. And you know, so there's a sense where you got to be self-critical and be like, okay, how can I improve this? But then you also don't want to look at it and be like, Oh man, this sucks. I'm not doing it again. It's a, you got to have yeah. that balance to continue to, to improve and, and make your work better. And ultimately that's the goal, right? I, I always say that I'll, I'll make the knife to the very best of my ability right now. And hopefully, 
you know, a knife five years from now is going to be better than what I'm making today. And ultimately, that's that's the goal is just continually improve. And I hope I never arrive at the point where I say, oh, yeah, you know what? I make I make the this is the best I can ever do. I make the best knives on earth because that's when you stop trying or sense. Right. So oh, absolutely. it's good to keep and that. I can tell. And I can tell just from the knives that I have of your um, early on versus the newer one, the most recent one that you made. I can see the evolution of your skill and your confidence. Yeah, that's interesting. There's nothing wrong with that first knife I ever bought. Absolutely nothing wrong. But from that little, uh, you know, clip-on uh, orange-handled mini uh, yeah. knife that I got, to and that sheep's foot, that first one I bought, yep. all the way up to the most recent sliver. Yep. Oh, my gosh. It's like going from a, a perfectly good you know, Lexus, and now I'm getting uh, Ferrari. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And people, if you want a tremendous belt knife that you can wear with a tuxedo, get uh, get a sliver. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're, uh, they're a fun little knife. I, I like the design. I actually did one that was called a tuxedo sliver uh, for a gentleman in, yes. in Colorado, but... Yeah, it's a it's a it lot of so fun. Awesome. Yeah, but I have a I actually bought a a new pew pew yesterday. Oh, did you? And uh, just to pair with this uh, carbon fiber uh, look handle sliver that I got, you yeah. know, it's stainless with the, I bought a Walter PPK stainless. Oh wow! Black handle, stainless steel James Bond gun. Okay. I think this is the slivers something James Bond would carry. That's cool. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool, and you can start, you know, pairing up your knives and your guns. <laughs> that's, that's when you yeah. know you got some some nice comfort in your life, right? That is interesting. Yeah. That's cool. So, well, I mean, as it goes toward making on YouTube, and I'll leave Instagram out of it because Instagram itself has become a meme yeah. uh, for makers. You know, Instagram weld, Instagram knife, Instagram this. Yeah. You know, um, it's like the, it's become a posing meme. But anyway, so just with like YouTube and platforms such as YouTube, because there are a couple of other, not as big. My frustration with it is because I do like to create. I have made furniture that's probably a whole lot better than I think it is because I'm overly critical of anything I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I made furniture, fine furniture, outdoor furniture, all wood turning. I've made art pieces. Now I'm getting into making with metal. And I think that, I guess what I'm trying to say is YouTube makers are starting to frustrate me because it's like they're more, I need to put out a video instead of a good thing, mm-hmm. a good end quality product. And there's a huge uh, YouTube maker is a huge person in the community. You look at here, the videos that this person is making now, and it's thrown together things for sponsorship. Yeah. And he, and, and it's identified as such in the video, you know, yeah, you know, do go company is sponsoring this video and I'm making this thing for them. Yeah. But you look at the thing and it's like, you know, that, you know, 
that butt joint is is a butt joint. That's not going to hold. That welds is you know never going to last, or you know that's not the right material for it. You know. Yeah. It, this is hard for me to. Um, I am finding it hard to describe what I'm trying to say without no. specifics, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean because uh, you know, like I, I think I. Personally, I like where I'm at with my YouTube in the fact, and, and I got to say this carefully, is that I don't really care about it. I do, right? And, and sometimes I look at it like I'm, I think I've got like 249,000 subscribers. And I look at some channels that have 30,000 and they've, they're working so hard and, and they're just putting out content like crazy. And I'm like, I'm, I actually need to be very thankful for what I have. It's, but at the same time, um, it's not something that can provide a living for myself, it's, it's like an incredible amount of work. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that like you're saying, like YouTube becoming something completely different. I'm really, I fight that like crazy. I would love to work with certain companies and I've reached out to them and they won't work with me. Uh, there's been a couple of them, uh, that I work with that I'm really happy about, like, uh, the black Fox grinder that I have. It's an amazing grinder. I'm going to be doing more videos on that. And, and that wasn't even a sponsorship, right? I don't get paid anything, but he wanted to send me it. And I'm willing to do that because it's pertinent to my channel. Um, you get these emails from these video game things like world of tanks and they reached out and they said, we're going to give you a six week contract and we'll give you $250 for every single video you do. And they said I could do up to four videos a week. Well, that's, that's good money, right? But if you're going to watch one of my YouTube videos, I, I feel so, I would feel terrible to take your time babbling on about a video game that personally I don't play. Uh, my, I've got a kind of grumpy old man attitude towards video games in general. I am not a fan of gaming. I, I think they distract people from doing stuff for real. Um, uh, thankfully, my kids have had no real interest in video games and, you know, they build radio controlled airplanes instead. And, uh, you know, my boys are learning how to weld and, and fix their mountain bikes. Um, so just for that alone, I wouldn't I wouldn't be like, hey, play this video game because I, I don't encourage people to play video games. I'd, I'd say put that thing away, go outside and, and build something, do something or go play a sport, you know, but it's it's so interesting. Without that, it, it's it's almost impossible to make any decent money. And that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I haven't uploaded videos for a while. Cause I kind of just don't care. It's like, I've got a lot of knife orders. I, I could not make knives and just do YouTube videos, but it's not worth it. Right? Like the, I can't feed my family with what I make on YouTube. And, and so it's interesting. And I know what you mean because the YouTube has kind of, the whole system has kind of driven itself to the point where if you want to be on YouTube, you have to be, you know, very sensational. Um, interesting. Like, uh, I'm not sure if you listen to the, uh, work for it podcast, uh, part of the makery network, but Brian house, a couple episodes ago was talking about what YouTube used to be like, just, yeah, um, you you know, can, people I, I haven't listened stuff. to that, but um, I don't mind someone getting money from a sponsorship. I don't mind a 10-second intro about NordVPN or World of Tanks. Mm -hmm. If the video behind it is a, they're making a quality product or providing a quality educational, you know, they're getting info out. Mm -hmm. That's they are, I don't know any other way of saying it. And I apologize, Jeremy, and I apologize to the audience, but they just throw together a half-assed thing and they call it making 
whatever, fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> I am so happy that um, I could be your fifth and worst episode. <laughs> no, I don't think so, Todd. <laughs> I don't think so. It's, uh, I can tell you this. This is a lot easier on me because... Um, Man, solo, just sitting here, I honestly feel like I've just got verbal diarrhea. I'm just, you know, when I do it by myself, it's like blah, blah, blah. Uh, part of my problem is I don't ever do notes. Like, I, I literally just have a microphone and I hit record. So there's like no paper in front of me that might help if I could put a few cohesive thoughts down first. But this has uh, been really great chatting with yeah. you. I really Having a storyboard it. always helps. Yeah, yeah, I should do that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I have had so much fun. Uh, I think you have sparked my... Well, not spark it. I've been wanting to do podcasting or, or build my YouTube channel. At least put stuff out there that I do for over a decade. I think now you kicked me in the pants. Good. That's excellent. No, and then I uh, absolutely can talk more offline, but I think, you know, you know, with, oh, absolutely. with the podcasting and, and stuff like that, it's, and, and even YouTube, right? There, there's a need for, for different things. And even, you know, like there's the niche or the niche and then there's little sub niches, right? Like, you know, there's makers and there's some makers that you resonate with and some that you don't. And then even with the group that you resonate with, there's still room for other facets of that, right? Because the more you dive down into something, the more you realize like, okay, there's only two people doing something here. Even though, you know, there's how many millions of YouTube channels and like a million podcasts, you know, I think there's always room for more. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk to you offline. Yeah, we'll do that for sure. I like to I like to wrap up the show with a like a recommendation, something that uh, you've been enjoying. I do have one um, relatively uh, small channel, but a phenomenal man and machinist, uh, Steve Summers. Steve Summers. 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 Oh yes, yes. S U N N E R S. And uh, I encourage everyone to uh, go there and watch uh, Steve, his lovely wife, his son. Uh, he does have daughters, but they're not on the, they're never on video. And then, uh, peanut and walnut, his pet squirrels <laughs> really? come to the shop. Oh, that's yep. funny. If you watch him enough, you will pick up on the, between the lines. Okay. Uh, he is a, a fun, he has a great personality. Yep. It, you just have to watch it. Um, just phenomenal. He's a machinist right now. Uh, he's doing a series about rebuilding his one side of his shop that was falling down into the creek. Oh, wow. uh, he's a perfectionist, and he's rebuilt a couple of machines. That's actually how he blew up on YouTube, because he was rebuilding a re, yeah rebuilding a shaper, and then some of the bigger YouTube uh, machinist makers like uh, Abom Seventy Nine, who like shapers, found him, and then they recommended him. Oh, okay. Um, He's got about 23,000 right now, right but he's, I believe, in my heart, one of the best uh, enjoyable makers to watch. Right on. Uh, puts out a video mostly every Saturday morning. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, I'll put the link for that in the show notes. Uh, thanks for that recommendation. And then I think for myself this week, I'm going to recommend a channel that I've subscribed to for uh, probably four or five years. Actually, I think no, not longer than that. Before I started my YouTube channel, I think I found his, um, and it's 65 Ford, I believe it is. And they're, they're generally like pretty no fuss. It's the same type of thing, right? Like, like not crazy with the cinematography, but just packed with useful information. And his stuff is kind of a lot of this Jack of all trades 
type of concept. Like, you know, he'll have videos where he takes an old propane tank and turns it into a mobile air tank. So you, you pressurize it and then you could actually take it in your truck to go fill up tires or a lot of really interesting practical things. He shows you how he can use different adapters so he can run, um, a DeWalt battery in a Makita cordless drill. Um, all kinds of just really, really practical things for your workshop and your garage. A lot of DIY type things. And man, I've learned so much from him. Even like how to put on different easy ways to put on a power meter to your battery. If you've got cordless tools that don't have a battery indicator on the battery, he shows you how you do that. It's just really, his, his videos are just packed with great information. I don't know if he's a mechanic. He seems like a mechanic type of a person to me, uh, but I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. So I think that'll wrap it up, Todd. I just want to say thank you again so much for your time. I really do appreciate this. And uh, this is the first time you and I have talked. And I've, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Ever since you said, hey, if you ever want somebody uh, to interview or to talk to in your podcast. So I'm really glad that you took the time. And I want to thank you so much for it. You know, I dropped my uh, some things I needed to get done and rearranged my schedule just so I could do this. Because uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a very long time. Because um, I think, you know, just knowing what I know about you from the internet, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that we have in common, a lot of common interests. And I just wanted to try to start building that friendship. And I think that we have done that. Yeah. And I cannot wait to our next conversation offline. Good boy. I got some questions for you. Right on. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, I just want to say thank you to everybody for listening and uh, check out some of the other shows on the Makery network. And we will see you next week with another episode. Take care. Cheers. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.